got the story, right? I mean, find a, find your own story. I always tell my students, what is the thing that makes you unique, right? What is the thing that what is the story only you can tell? Welcome to the Lifelines podcast, brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. I'm Marina Aris, and I'm Diane Fenner, and we're your hosts. This is the podcast for book creators, book lovers, and literary ambassadors. Join us each week as we explore the writing life the art and the business of creating great books. Today, we are interviewing Patricia Horvath, the author of All the Difference, a memoir that lays bare the myths of disability and how our hearts and minds can surpass the most difficult limitations. Patricia's essays and stories have appeared in numerous literary journals, including the Massachusetts Review, the Los Angeles Review, Shenandoah, and a few others. She is the recipient of the New York Foundation for the Arts Fellowships for both fiction and literary nonfiction, and she teaches at Framingham State University in Massachusetts. So, Diane, why don't you get us started since you had the pleasure of reading this book cover to cover? I did have a pleasure reading the book. I picked it up and didn't stop until I was done. It's very, very compelling. And I guess I wanted to start by asking you about the genesis of the book. I mean, I can see from your background that you've written lots of different kinds of material. What made you decide on this material? What got you started on this book, All the Difference? I write out of what I term generally vexation and inquiry, meaning that something is bothering me and I have to try to figure it out and I figure it out by writing. And what was bothering me in this case is that when I was still in my 30s, I was diagnosed with osteoporosis, full-blown osteoporosis, and I was put on medication, and I would look at the commercials on television, and it was always women in their 60s on the medication, and I was still in my 30s. And it really bothered me, and I was trying to understand why was I so upset by this diagnosis And I realized it had to do with this mistrust of my body. And it harkened back to when I had scoliosis and when my spine was fused and I was unable to walk. And I had this sort of bifurcation where I live in my mind, but I had distrust of my body. And so I wrote a story about this. I wrote fiction and I shared it with my writing group and they said, well, you know, what's the genesis of the story? And I told them about my spinal fusion and I'd known these women for almost a decade. And they said, you never told us about this. This is the story you have to write. Wow. And I said, I didn't want to, it's too (laughs) close to me. And they said, no, that's why you have to do it. So they pushed me to do it. Yeah, that makes sense. That's vexation and inquiry. So that's your process generally, something that's bothering you Mm -hmm. and you want to understand it. Exactly. becomes the topic that you write about. Exactly. I I feel that way too, actually. I mean, when I, my daily journals are, are that, right, in a way. And, and that's what I find is the most value in, you know, saying what's going on and why is it. Because you know? there's a sense of things not being resolved. Yes. And you need yes. to try to figure. Yes. The, and I think right we all have these unresolved daily things. At least I do. Yeah. And so I can prob- relate to that. Yeah. And it probably is what a lot of our listeners and writers in general use as the starting points for their work as well. Well, leading right into that, actually, I particularly liked page 85, because there is a lovely line that says, I've always seen myself as two selves, functional mind, dysfunctional body, one to be cultivated, the other endured. Mm. I love this line. It's beautiful, beautiful. And I mean, I think if you can elaborate just a bit more on it, I think you kind of touched on it just a moment ago, but I feel that 
there are writers out there who are dealing with all kinds of memoirs, all mm-hmm. kinds of adversity. And this is one that I feel is especially important to touch on because we're, we're so used to like the adversity of like what I write about childhood trauma or something. Mm-hmm. But this is so, so different. It's a feel that your body is at odds with your mind. Can you touch on that just a bit more? Well, precisely. And I think we all have these identities that in some sense become reductive, right? In our family, you might be the funny one or you might be, my brother was the athletic one. And I distinguished myself by being the smart one. I was so inept physically. And we had to take the presidential fitness test every year with the chin-ups and the sit-ups. And we were so on display and I would always flunk them. But I was good academically, And so I saw this really strict sort of boundary between the intellectual, which I was good at and thrived at, and the physical, where I would quite literally fail. I'd get these failing marks on these tests. I find it fascinating. Um, And so I privileged, if you will, I privileged the the intellectual. Sure. And I thought, I'll just be smart. If I can't be physically capable, I'll be intellectually capable. And so I withdrew from physical things and I, I read and I wrote and um, at the time not realizing that in the long run, that was not good for my bones. Sure. Right. Exactly. That makes sense now how the early diagnosis came in. And then you uh, ended up all the way in the life, the reading and writing life, of a professor of reading and writing, I guess. I love that life. (laughs) And I'm from a working class background. So I'm the first one in my family to go to college. So it's a little bit unusual in the sense that I feel it's a real privilege. Sure. It's a real privilege to be a member of academia and to be able to live that life. Well, I don't want to do a spoiler here, but I'm wondering about where you end up. And I don't want to give away too much because I've already read it. But you talk about this theme that you were first fascinated by and then wanted to inquire more deeply into this idea of sort of uniting the two Mm -hmm. sides of your divided self. In fact, I think you talked about it somewhere around page 85 as well, where you said grappling with the past was an attempt to forge an integrated self. Mm -hmm. So without cutting short the experience of reading the book, I just want to ask, did you? (laughs) I think that's an ongoing struggle for me. There's not a point where I can say, yes, now I feel like these two parts, the physical and the intellectual, have been integrated. I just think it's it's part of the struggle. Sure. Hmm. Well, and I think that's common for a lot of us. I do. This theme that you explored also touched on disability, this Mm -hmm. idea of how other people perceive you when you appear to be disabled as well as what it's like when you feel that, in part, something is not functioning. Mm-hmm. So did that also shape where you ended up, your your identity? Did that? Well, it's one of the questions I'm grappling with. When I started to write the book, one of the questions in, in the back of my brain was, what happens to one's sense of self when a physical disability ceases to be visible? Because I was visibly disabled. I wore a back brace 
and I was in a body cast and I couldn't move for a while. And then abruptly, very, you know, suddenly all the braces and the cast came off and there was nothing to mark me as visibly disabled. So I was thinking about that in terms of fairy tales, right? There's always the physically marred creature who's redeemed. And I talk about the myth of the Arthurian legend of Dame Ragnall in the book. She's a hag and then she undergoes a transformation and she's beautiful and everyone goes from jeering at her to accepting her. So I had a certain amount of that. Certainly I was treated differently as an adolescent by boys, principally after the braces and casts came off. But I think that's a a struggle too. That's probably a a lifelong, maybe not struggle, but issue. That's a lifelong one. What is it, you know, what's that border between physically disabled and able-bodied? And what does it mean to be on one side or the other? Because for most of us, it's temporary. Right. And I'm wondering if is it if it isn't maybe more of a struggle when it's less visible. Mm. Oh, I'm when, thinking for mm. sure, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, you yes. carry the burden just internally, exactly. knowing that there's yeah. something that other people don't know. And did you try to compensate in in some way? Did you did you feel like you were an actor or an imposter, or did you carry around a mask? I think becoming a, a, a university professor is compensation. <laughs> really, sure. I mean, I just I, I said I'm going to live the life of the mind, and you know, my my grandmother was a sure. high school dropout, and my mother wanted to go to college. There were three children, one boy and two girls, and guess which one got to go to college? Yeah, and the so boy. You know, I get to live this very. My job is to sit and read and write, and I could not be happier. (laughs) It's kind of satisfying in a way to have the thing that was a source of pain and torture and the feeling of being an outcast have turned into something that brought you so much pleasure. Well, that's a fairy tale transformation too, right? Yes, of course it is. Absolutely. I would agree with that 100%. Let me just shift for a second because we're here in New York, and, and New York has a prominent role in the book. And I just Mm. want to kind of bring your attention around to that. You said, uh, I moved to New York during the first year of the new century and that, and that you wrote about New York. Can Mm -hmm. you just uh, expand on that? Well, my parents divorced when I was about 10 years old and my father lived in New York. He lived in Manhattan. And that's another kind of fairy tale because I would go to visit him and I thought, I want to live here. I really would. And he lived on the waterside towers on the East River. And to me, it was just magical, the river and, you know, going around to New York. And it was the 70s. It was grungy, right. but it was also kind it's of still magical. still the water. I mean, it's and then I'd there. skip school. I wrote about that in the book when I was a kid. I would sometimes skip school and get on the train and go to New York and play hooky. And I thought it's a place I always wanted to live. And it was a place where I felt it was capacious. There was room for, and I don't know that I intellectualize this, but there was room for people who were different. Right. You know, that makes sense. So I really was drawn to it. My mother moved to New York after her second divorce in the 1980s. She moved to Hell's Kitchen. And then my brother moved to New York. I lived there for a while in the 90s, early 90s. She lived there in the in the mid 80s. Wow, yeah, and not too far from when I was. My in. brother moved to the Upper West Side in the 90s, and I finally made it to Harlem after grad school. I moved to Harlem in 2000. I almost feel like that's a universal experience of coming to a city like New York or just coming to New York and being captivated by it because it seems to have a place for everyone, especially writers. Mm-hmm. So... I know that you went on, and I do want to get back to the book, but just for a second, if we could talk about this 
craft and structure of writing mm-hmm. because you went on to be a professor and I, a lot of our listeners are writers at different stages of their careers. I'm curious about how do you structure the book? I noticed, for example, some chapters are very short, maybe mm-hmm. as short as page and a half, two pages somewhere in there, and others are much longer. Could you just talk for a minute about when you sit down and you undertake the project, what's your process? Do you do a whole outline and how do you structure it and how do you know what's the right architecture for your narrative or do you not do that first do you just do little bits and pieces and then weave them together later how do you approach this task of writing a memoir well with this project with a memoir it's different from fiction because you know the story you're going in there and you know what the beginning and the middle and the end is and you know what the the transformation is actually do you know the end i have to stop you there because as memoir diane and i are also writing memoir Mm -hmm. and I struggled with the end, right? Because you're ongoing in essence. So it's, it's, I just find it interesting that you said you know the end. I find That's that true. we struggle with the end. Well, the, I guess there's the physical ending of the, the physical act of transformation. Right? Okay, got so it. So the story, but sense. then there's the, you know, what do you make of it? Which right. is the more important question in memoir, not the story, but what you make of the story. Sure. And that's the ongoing so question. Got it. Right? Okay. okay. And that's the part that you didn't necessarily know when you first sat down. Although you knew that you had gone through wearing a brace and coming out of the brace and becoming a professor, you didn't necessarily know the meaning of it all. Is that right? Exactly. So sense. what does it mean to have been formerly disabled? And I don't know that I still know the answer to that, yeah. but I had to do a lot of research for this. There's an enormous amount of research that went into it. So that was part of how I structured it. I had to do interviews and I found my old medical records. I found my old journals. So I really was sort of just sitting with a pile of the papers because they go back decades. They weren't on the computer and sort of putting things into piles and figuring that was part of how I I set up the architecture of the book. So you did set up the whole architecture first before putting pen to paper? Or fingers to Well, I did, but then I rewrote and I rewrote right. and I would show it to people and they'd say, well, what about your family? And people would ask me questions. Oh, and I'd got go, it. oh okay, that's right. I hadn't thought about that. And how long how, how long did it take? Did, did I worked it? intermittently on this book for about seven years. And I would sneak off and write stories because I wanted to finish something. Sure, that makes sense. I was working on a story collection at the same time. Oh, that's great. That makes a lot of sense. I like that. So then... In essence, it's a work in progress and you kind of just, gave, it sounds like you just gave the drafts a try, said, this is what I have now. And then with the feedback that you were getting, you went ahead and tried it once again to shape it. it sounds like exactly. that, that was the process. I'm in a writer's group. I've been in a writer's mm-hmm. group since I was in grad school. So oh, that's um, great. we get together still once a year and we share work and I sent them an early draft and I incorporated their notes. And it was very helpful to have readers who are generous readers, but also critical readers. Sure. sure. What was the hardest part about writing a memoir, especially about it mm. having so much of a place in your life, seven mm. years of being an unfinished work in progress? What was the hardest thing about all that? About the actual writing process, it was hard to get my mother to talk about some of this. And there are, she was my caretaker during this time. I was 15 when my spine was fused and I couldn't walk. And in order to understand the experience, and I write about this in the book, it becomes a meta, a, a meta memoir. I found an old paper she had written as a, as a college student in night school 
about this experience. And her take on the experience was so different from mine that I actually went and interviewed her. And it was hard for her to revisit that time. And she even said, honey, you know, why do you want to go back there? And that's a great question. I put that in the book. That actually relates. We had a question about that in mind for you about family members as characters in your book, Mm -hmm. because a lot of people struggle with sharing the intimate details of the people that they're closest Mm -hmm. to. It's an ethical issue. Sure. And so finally, were you able to convince her? Well, you know, I, when, I, when I give readings, I have this joke that I tell my family, I wrote a book, you're in it, don't sue me. <laughs> but I, my mother was very helpful. She got on board with the project and eventually my brother was very helpful. They both let me interview them and I changed names. And I changed a few identifying features mm-hmm. for some of the people in the book because I don't know where they are anymore. And I don't know how much they would want to be in my narrative, but Mm -hmm. we don't live in a Mm -hmm. vacuum. It's Mm -hmm. impossible to write about one's own life without writing about other people. That's so true. I would agree with that. Especially mothers. I I feel like I remember a quote from Mary Carr about women always writing a memoir about their mothers or always needing to. It is difficult when and your mother is still living, and yes. is it okay with her now as she looks back over the things you've written about her? It is. She actually lives in Beacon, New York, and she... Dia, Dia ha- is there. The Dia's Dia there. Beacon, yes. Yeah, the okay. Dia's fantastic. So she actually helped me to get a reading in Beacon. Really? That's wonderful. She, knows, um, I must, she was very much on board with it. I must, yeah, I must say that her character struck me as admirable. I don't know whether people reading books about themselves or paragraphs about themselves feel the same way. I know it's a very sensitive thing to read something that someone has said about you, but to me, she emerged almost as a heroine. She was Mm. quite heroic. She was the one who fought for you when the nurses didn't want your boyfriend to come around. Mm -hmm. She was the one who fought for you in your family relationships and your relationships with doctors. And she just emerged as heroic. Mm. That's wonderful. I'm so glad it so, turned out that way. Yeah, shout out to How your about mom. the rest of your family? How are they with the with the book? What was the response well, that you got? They don't read it. So. They don't read. My brother my brother read it. He said it was, you know, my brother read it, my mother read it, but I don't as far as I know. That's the way with families, isn't that, it? You know, yeah, and they take it for granted. They don't really like, oh, they're Mary just a writer. wrote this, this wonderful essay about going to a party and her aunts were there and they said, "Well, we don't like your books." Really? <laughs> That's intense. But I think our families are, are from an academic or big, a family with big readers. Yeah. So, you sure, know. sure, sure. That makes Maybe sense. Maybe it's because they don't read. But also, I think in every family, people have us each pigeonholed, right? So, yes. in your family, they know you in a certain way. Right. And it's very hard for you, meaning any you, any one of us you know, to break out of that mold. I mean, I think forever and ever, the role that you first got in your family stays around you. So do you want to just want go go back around just for one second? Because I think that Diane had mentioned something interesting about the structure of your book, and I didn't mm. want to not touch on it again. Okay. Yeah. Diane mentioned that some of your chapters were longer than others. Right. So tell us a little bit about why that is and how you came to that decision. Well, there were some chapters where I had to incorporate a lot of medical information. So the chapter where I'm undergoing surgery, for instance, I had my medical reports at that point. I had the doctor's notes. And and those are chapters where there needed to be a certain amount of explication. Okay. Explaining what it what sense. it was yeah. what it means to have a spine fused. 
whereas other chapters that were say there was less going on or more internal things going on could be right. shorter. I didn't sit down and say this is you a long sure, chapter, this sure. is a short chapter, it just arose more organically than that as as it does in writing. And so there's no general rule or that you would advise writers about there's no way of deciding that things have to be a particular way. You don't alternate long and short or want each thing to be of a uniform length. About length? No, not. I think you have to figure out as you're writing, how long does this need to be to say what I have to say and not to be any longer than that. Right. And I guess we're going to be touching on then is the editing process Mm. because editors will sometimes, depending on if it's a developmental editor, they may Mm -hmm. be able to tell you, well, you know, this is how the structure of this book should should mm-hmm. kind of play out. How, what kinds of editors did you work with? I worked with a very good editor at Etruscan Press, Chris Bullard. Chris Bullard was your editor. And he, we did not do a lot of editing. I had taken the book through so many drafts. By the time I sent it to Etruscan, they said, we think this is pretty clean. But what he did suggest is that I start with the genesis of the book. In other words, to have the structure be circular, to begin in the present and discuss how I came to write the book and then return to that and um, include the chapters about, for instance, buying the place in Harlem and moving to New York. And when I did that, it it made sense. Right. That is a good editing relationship then because you can implement what they say. Some people struggle against editorial suggestions. Well, a lot of people struggle against editorial yeah, suggestions. I know, but it, I think it's part of being a professional. You know, I try to explain this to my students because sometimes in their early stages of their writing careers, they're so invested in their early drafts, and you try to get them to understand it's just a draft, and part of being a professional is being open to critique right. and criticism. You have when to you, be. When you teach, do your students take open-ended classes in any kind of genre they want to apply to their creative writing, or do you teach memoir specifically? I teach a course in life writing, which is memoir and biography, writing our own stories and writing the stories of others. I teach a general creative writing course that touches on poetry and fiction and playwriting. And then I teach a fiction course. When I taught at Hofstra, I taught a course in the literature of disability, which I want to resurrect it. Wow, that just—that's so great. I yeah. love that. I love the idea. Well, and the question of teaching is opening up a lot. Do you ever find that you are talking to someone to whom you want to say, "Forget it. Get a job doing anything but writing." Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cruel. Cool. <laughs> I know. I, I I know. But I'm bringing that up just as a springboard. Do you find that that's something that? Uh, sometimes my, you know, there, there's sometimes you come across somebody who just doesn't have the discipline. And, discipline, or, you see, or that's they, different than the skill. Well, in a way. I think so. that they go hand in hand, right? You have to. It, it's talent will take you so far, but you have to be willing to sit down and work. And when I come across students who are reluctant to, you know, they want the, they want to be published, but not necessarily do the hard work that leads to publication, then sometimes we have to have a little chat about what it takes. It's not just about seeing your name in print. Sure, sure. I mean, go ahead. Do you have some minimum? I mean, do you tell people, listen, you have to sit down for two hours a day, or you have to do a certain minimum? Is that something that you tell people? I recommend it. 
And what exactly? I recommend give, give our listeners some homework. Well, <laughs> that would be great. No, I just recommend, you know, I have a, a colleague who said, if you do something for 40 days, it becomes a habit. Yes. Right. There's some argument of whether it's 21 days, 40 days. Well, but whatever. I think you're right. 40 sounds good. 40 it's, sounds it's good. Biblical, right? 40 sure. days and 40 nights. Sure. So I just tell them that do this the first thing every day. I don't care if it's for 20 minutes. I know everybody's busy and, and I teach at a at an institution where it's a state university. So my students are not economically privileged. Many of them have full-time jobs while they're also full-time students. So I understand time is an issue, but take 20 minutes, the beginning of every day and just do this and it will change you because you'll get in the habit. And I think 20 minutes, you know, ideally two hours, sure, but we we might not have two hours. Right. So you still have to try to do the work. I agree. I just wanted to touch on this belief that some people have that you cannot teach writing well, and particularly memoir writing. And there are those of us, obviously, that believe you're born writers. Mm-hmm. Where do you see this on the spectrum of extreme, you know, well, born I, writers and, and you can't ever teach anybody to write? What do you I think about think that? that if I thought you couldn't teach writing, I would be a fraud <laughs> as a sure. writing teacher. You can teach people to read. You can teach people to read critically. You can teach people to read with an understanding of metaphor, with an understanding of craft, and you can teach them to apply that understanding to their own work. That makes sense. Right? I I get that. Yes, because we start as readers. We start as readers. Yeah. I like that approach. Well, speaking of the difficulties that writers face, did you have to submit this to a lot of publishers before Etruscan accepted it, or did you go straight to Etruscan and have no hurdles in the process at all? Oh, we had hurdles. No hurdles. Stay <laughs> I had a wonderful agent, and he was submitting it to commercial presses, and I was getting the same answer. We were getting the same answer over and over again, which is essentially, this is beautifully written, but we cannot make any money off of it. Oh, great. So at that point, we started looking at university presses and Etruscan said yes. Wonderful. And how long did it take you to find your agent? Not long. I mean, he, he was a, the agent of a, a friend of mine. I had been trying to find an agent for a, a while, but once I found this agent, once I got in touch with him, he took me right away. But he's since retired, which I'm sad about. Oh, sure. That stuff. Would you ever consider self-publishing your work? I don't know that much about it. I'm really not. I don't know enough about it to, to, give, to give an intelligent answer to that. Well, we'll talk about that in future episodes because I think people are starting to ask more questions today than they used to. But mm-hmm. I think it's wonderful that you yeah. found someone that was a great representative and eventually stuck and through been, it. And they've been wonderful. I think the, yeah. the book looks gorgeous. They've been sure. They've been really open to my suggestions mm-hmm. about how I wanted the book to look and well, that's be structured and they've done a great job promoting it and they've been wonderful to work I with. I mean, I've heard university presses actually are a bit easier and, and more, it's a better process than, mm-hmm. than a lot of the big houses, right? With the big. Well, I think if you're, a, if you're not a big name author and you're at a big name press, you might get lost in the fray. I don't know. That seems to be the general consensus, especially now, but I think it's wonderful that you've had such a good mm-hmm. experience. Do you have any other books lined up for them? I have a book of short stories that I've just completed called But Now I'm Found. The title story was the Bellevue Literary Review Story Award recipient a couple of years ago. And I'm also working on a series of linked essays around caretaking and illness. Lovely. 
Well, I see we're getting close to half an hour. And before we wrap up, I just wondered if there's something you wanted to tell our listeners in particular that we haven't already covered about the experience of writing memoir and telling your true story. Oh, well, I mean, everyone's got the story, right? I mean, find your own story. I always tell my students, what is the thing that makes you unique, right? What is the thing that, what is the story only you can tell? That's good. And I think we all have those stories. Yeah, I agree with you. That's a nice place to wrap up. All right. Well, Patricia, thank you again for joining us today. I wanted to just tell our listeners where they can find out more about you, your books, your events, anything that's Um, coming up. Well, my website, which is www.patricialhorvath.com. And that's H-O-R-V as in vision, A-T-H. The book is available through the usual suspects, <laughs> Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Yeah, and, and again, Goodreads, the title is All the Difference. Difference. That came from the Robert Frost poem? It came from the Robert Frost oh, poem. Oh, I love that. Exactly. Two roads diverging in the woods, and you took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Thank you again, Patricia. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the interview. Up next is our On the Hook segment, where each week, we share an excerpt from a work in progress. And since today's interview was about memoir, Marina and I are sharing an excerpt from our memoirs. The title of my memoir is Running Into the Night, and this excerpt is from the prologue. My mother never set out to teach me anything, but by bearing witness and through my own suffering, I learned how to survive long before I learned how to read. But I was not the only one learning how to survive. New Yorkers were learning along with me. We were residents of Beer City. The Muggers Express trains ran all the way from the billowy clouds of arson smoke in the Bronx, past the gang fights, down to the Bowery Skid Row where the drunks and stoners spooned each other on busy sidewalks, to Lynch Park in South Williamsburg, past the ghosts of Dumbo, and finally into the Cocaine Corral in Queens, where I would eventually spend two years of my childhood and where my sixth and seventh birthdays were not cause for celebration. The title of my memoir is Waking Up from the American Dream, and this excerpt is from the prologue. The answer came to me in the form of a memoir about love and marriage and the difference between them, about motherhood and madness and the connection between them. As I wrote forward, my story went backward. It began at the end of something, and it ended at the beginning of something else. If you'd like to be featured on The Hook, email us an excerpt from your work in progress at contact at lifelinespodcast.com. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep bringing you great content. For show notes, upcoming events, and to participate in the Brooklyn Writers Project community, head on over to our website at www.brooklynwritersproject.com. Questions or comments? Send them to contact at lifelinespodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Lifelines, the books podcast has been brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. Music for this podcast has been provided by Anthony Nuda of Noble Sense Productions.